You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Welcome to the UI podcast and our research track. My name is Stephanie Esk. I work as a program manager and with communications here at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs, UI. And here with me today, I have Tim Rulik. He's an analyst with a special focus on Europe's relation to Asia and particularly on China. And he works for our Europe and Asia program. During 2018, the both programs with Tim as coordinator spearheaded the annual report for the European Think Tank Network on China, ETNC. The report, Political Values in Europe-China Relations, was launched in Brussels in December and will have its Swedish launch here at UI on February 5th. So Tim, firstly, could you tell us a bit about the network and the work behind this report? Sure. The network itself contains the China experts of 19 think tanks all over Europe, um, 17 of which have contributed to last year's report. And what the uh, think tank network does is we meet twice a year all over Europe to discuss the current state of Europe-China affairs. We exchange different perspectives from all the different member states, EU member states. There's one non-EU member included, that is Norway, but all the others come from EU countries. Um, And each year the network itself is also preparing one annual report that focuses on one specific issue. So last year it has been the role of political values, and when we speak of political values we mean democracy, human rights and the rule of law. So what we've asked ourselves is how does Europe try to promote those three values in its relations with China? How could it do it better, of course, and how do the different approaches in the different European countries also differ from uh, one another? Um, And this report last year, as you've been mentioning, uh, has been spearheaded uh, here by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs, uh, which is uh, very common because we have sort of a rotating presidency, a bit like the EU, that each year a different institute is leading the whole process. So last year it has been us, and we have been uh, spearheading this work on political values last year. You referred to the diversity of the different European states' approaches um, that are covered by the network. What sort of different approaches have you found in relation to political values? Uh, Enormous differences, actually. I think if you look back, um, say, 20, 25 years, you can see that the EU has had a very, already also quite different approaches to, to that issue, but it's, it's a lot changing in the last couple of years. Uh, China is becoming more confident, confident in its own political system, confident also of its international power, so it's also investing uh, in, in some European countries. Um, and that has also shaped the different, very different perspectives uh, on China throughout Europe. So what you can see is a first group that is very much still committed to the three political values. Um, these are mainly Nordic countries, uh, namely Sweden, the UK and Germany, who very much and vocal promote uh, those three issues in their relations with China. You have a second group of countries that share the same commitments but are less vocal. Um, 
either because they fear they can't say it in public, or be, and some also think that it's counterproductive uh, to pressure China on this publicly, but rather use discrete channels. Among those countries are, for example, Belgium, uh, France, uh, Denmark as well, Norway, which has suffered a lot uh, from uh, Chinese retaliation after the Norwegian Nobel, Prize, uh, P Nobel Peace Prize Committee has awarded that to the Chinese intellectual and dissident Liu Xiaobo. That has caused a lot of retaliation there. Um, so so th that second group uh, is basically uh, promoting the same values, but in, to, in, in a different way, in a more discreet way. Then we have a third group, probably the biggest group of states that are mainly passive, actually. That means they don't oppose uh, the policies that the first two groups of states take, but they never take the initiative. So they try to stay sort of in the shadow, they try to outsource the whole issue to the European Union as such, and don't take, for example, Poland. Poland is not taking a public stance on this, but it's never opposing issues that the European partners or the EU takes themselves. And then there's three countries and a fourth and final group uh, that we call passive and occasionally uh, counteractive or potentially counteractive. These are Greece, Hungary and Italy. And those three countries have at times chosen to even oppose an, a unified European stance to promote democracy, human rights and the rule of law. Um, and to provide you just an example of what we mean by counteractive measures, um, so on, uh, in 2017, in the UN Human Rights Council, in the EU is usually uh, taking a unitary stance on human rights violations committed by China. And for the first time in the history in 2017, Greece uh, basically told the EU that they would veto that EU statement. So the EU as such could not criticize human rights violations in China anymore. Um, that was very much a surprise of all the other EU uh, countries. Um, it had always been uh, a custom to take a unitary stance and not get divided, but this time was the first occasion, and there's similar cases with Italy and Hungary. Right. You mentioned it a little bit, but uh, what would you say, like, um, the, um, the reasons behind these different approaches? Yeah, well, I think there's three sets, basically, of reasons uh, that we find uh, that motivate the different approaches by European states. Um, one, and that might be the most surprising to all of us in the network, was uh, the importance of historical legacy. Because usually we tend to say uh, we all live in democracies that include uh, regular elections in terms of governments, so you could uh, expect that uh, historical legacies are interrupted all the time. When there's a new government in, it might take a new stance on foreign policy. Uh, and there are indeed examples where that's indeed the case. Look in the Czech Republic, for example. But um, that has always been one of the most critical, uh, China-critical countries in Europe. And now it has a rather pro-Chinese president, Midas um, Seyman. Um, but in general, we still found that historical legacy is quite important. It is quite important 
in explaining why different states take different approaches, but it also influences a lot the domestic debates on what sort of stance to take. So Sweden, for example, has quite a long tradition in and self-perception of being a human rights defender. Uh, Germany uh, very often refers to the Nazi period as its, as, it, as its historical legacy that it needs to sort of carry on and, and, and implement the lessons it has learned from it. Um, but it works also in, in a different way. For example, Spain is, uh, is very much taking the perspective that its own transition from the Franco dictatorship has been one without external interference and that it has worked out uh, pretty well for Spain. So they take the, the, the position that it's, it's quite natural uh, to be supportive of, of such trends but not be very proactive and not interfering into other countries. Or to give you just the last example, in Portugal you see a very strong post-colonial legacy where many say, well, we have been interfering so much in our history in, into other countries. We've caused so much trouble for other countries. May we take a backseat here and leave that more to the Chinese, not saying we're not supportive of human rights, democracy and the rule of law, but not actively promoting it. So this is one reason that different historical legacies actually uh, lead to different policy. A second set, and that might not be surprising in the first place, is economics. Uh, but if we, if we take a closer look, um, we found that economics play out quite differently than one might expect in the first place. So for one, uh, we have looked at Chinese investments in Europe and we sort of expected a bit that the more Chinese investments flow into a country, the more likely it would be that this country does not want to upset China and will retract from supporting human rights, democracy and the rule of law. Uh, actively and vocally. But actually that's not the case. Uh, you can't find a clear correlation between uh, direct investments from China into a country and uh, the country's stance on political values. What you can actually see is that it does play a role, a crucial role, in a few countries but not in all of them. And these countries are particularly ones uh, that either very much hope for future investments or that had re received investments in particularly sensitive uh, sectors. So just give me two examples here again. Greece is very much, and also Hungary, are very much hoping to have an investment gap that they face to be filled by Chinese money. They have received some, but less than we tend to think in the public debate, uh, uh, have received less funds from China yet, but they are still hoping for more. So for them, that's quite a crucial uh, point. And, for example, Portugal has received lots of investments in water supply, for example, in electricity. So this is particularly sensitive and also has probably shaped the Portuguese approach. When it comes to trade, um, there we find an even more surprising uh, finding because we believed or expected that the higher the trade uh, uh, dependency of a country with China, uh, again, the more likely it would be for those countries to retract from democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. And again, the, it's not the case. In fact, the opposite is the case. So the higher the share uh, of your trade is, uh, the Chinese share of your trade is, the higher the likelihood uh, uh, that you take a strong stance on democracy, human rights, and the rule of law. 
Now we have of course asked ourselves why is that the case and we found that the countries who trade most with China are also the ones having a rather high uh, per capita GDP. So they are the quite wealthy countries. So you could say, well, the real correlation here is if you feel you can afford uh, uh, being independent from China, you take a more critical stance. That's probably true, uh, but I think what the finding clearly shows is that trade as such does not distort your commitment to democracy, human rights and the rule of law, something that is often believed in the public debate because we think, well, after all, you can buy out any, any country. And finally, and very briefly, the third set of explanation relates to Chinese pressure. I've already mentioned a bit uh, the Norwegian example, which is probably the most uh, uh, important one in that regard. So we do see that China has actually stepped up its pressure on a couple of countries on a couple of occasions, uh, and that has led uh, uh, countries to downgrade the importance of political values in their relations with China. Now, what is interesting here as well is that none of the countries that has actually um, received that much pressure has retracted fully from its commitment. So it's, it leads to downgrading the issue, but it's not uh, taking the whole issue off the agenda, which is, I think, a quite positive uh, uh, result here. Yeah, um, yeah we talked about um, Europe's approaches towards China, um, but China's influence is rising globally, and how do you see China shaping the European take on political values? Yeah, that's indeed tying in with the last aspect uh, that, mm. that I mentioned. Uh, so China is trying uh, to influence Europe, first of all, to sort of interfere into European countries to uh, make them not criticize China. I think mm. that's, that's the number one priority in that field for, for China. But I guess also to sort of weaken in more generally Europe's commitment to promote to promote democracy, human rights and the rule of law globally, because China believes uh, uh, it might be able to spread its own political ideas, its pol own political system mm. internationally. And of course, the more you have strong Western powers promoting traditional political, liberal political values, and the more difficult uh, this gets. Um, China, though, is, and, and we have seen, I should mention that, we've seen a couple of studies, particularly in the last, let's say, one, one and a half years, you've really digged into that issue very deeply, looking into how China is trying to influence our public debates, for example, by putting paid advertisement in newspapers, in European newspapers that very much look like uh, um, journalistic content um, so it's quite difficult to identify them as paid advertisement um, by erecting Confucius Institutes right here in Sweden I think three out of four Confucius Institutes have been closed down again because mm. then suspicion rose among uh, the Swedish public particularly in universities mm. uh, of the intentions behind those uh, state, Chinese state paid uh, Confucius Institutes and so on and so forth and that also, and that last example already uh, demonstrates uh, or illustrates one of the findings of our report that indicates that at least so far, 
the successes of China in this field are quite limited. Um, so what we see are lots of attempts, but what we also see is that the general perspective in Europe on China remains quite critical. Um, that shouldn't comfort us too much. First, we see always a couple of decisions where China is having an influence. I mentioned the Greek case before. Uh, I could also mention Hungarian uh, cases. So yes, there is some influence. Second, Eurosceptics, not all Eurosceptics, but some Eurosceptic parties are turning to the Chinese example and saying, see, we have an alternative here. So there is some attractiveness, particularly in the populist right, uh, uh, to turn to China in some countries, not all again. Um, and we also don't know about the long-term effects, of course. So, so far, we can be quite... Uh, quite comfortable with the situation. We can say, well, the facts have been very limited, but uh, we'll need to see how that plays out in the future. Mm. So, uh, lastly, what are the um, agency's ambition with this report? What are you hoping it will lead to? Do you have any um, <laughs> experiences from December you want to share? Yes, actually, I think uh, the whole network uh, we are all uh, pretty overwhelmed by the reaction. We haven't really expected uh, that um, because uh, we had and we have had the the launch event in December, as you mentioned. Uh, we were also invited to present in the European Commission uh, in a closed door meeting our results. The same goes for the European External Action Service, which is sort of the diplomatic uh, uh, service of the European Union. Uh, in the beginning of this year we have received the extraordinary news that the uh, State Department of the United States has made the report um, part of its recommended reading lists for all its diplomatic missions and has sent the report, the digital version of the report, around the globe. And we'll also have uh, more presentations to come with the delegates dealing with uh, Asia from all the European Union member states, mm. so the European Council, um, at the end of uh, January, as well as a conference in the European Parliament where we present the main results. So the reaction actually has been uh, pretty overwhelming. Uh, we are also very much looking forward, of course, to have the event here in Stockholm on the 5th of uh, February, as you mentioned. Um, and we also have similar presentations in other European capitals. Mm. So it's really attracting quite a lot of uh, attention. And what we hope is, I mean, what you can achieve with a single report is probably quite limited. What, what mm. we hope is that it contributes to a process of rethinking that is certainly going on about what sort of uh, China policy we want to take in Europe and that certainly also needs uh, an exchange of information and also an exchange of differences in perspectives. Because after all, China is rising and if we want to achieve anything as Europeans uh, in our relations with China, we can on only do it in concert and together. Mm -hmm. Each of us, Sweden, Germany, France, the UK, we all are uh, we too weak to actually have a real leverage over China. We can even question whether the EU as such has real leverage over China. But if we want to achieve something, then only uh, as Europeans together in the European Union. So we hope that uh, that report uh, is going to contribute to that process of mm. formulating a new, truly European China policy.
Well, thank you, <laughs> Tim, for um, this interview, and good luck uh, here at EOI on February 5th, and uh, um, your future work on this. Thank you very much. Find us on www.ui.se. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch our seminars and interviews.